Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Marjorie Post was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth, but breakfast cereal sure provided her with one before her 10th birthday. She parlayed her father's company into a major food conglomerate and lived large as the Duchess of Washington, D.C. and the Queen of Palm Beach. With philanthropy, square dancing, and Marie Antoinette's earrings. The end. Let's talk about Marjorie Merriweather Post. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1914, what we now know of as World War I began in Europe. The stock firm Merrill Lynch was founded, and Greyhound Lines, the bus company, began. The city of Beverly Hills, California, was incorporated. Vaudevillian Harry Fox invented a brand new dance called the Foxtrot. Though it would take eight years to complete, construction began on the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Dr. Harry Plotz identified the bacteria that caused typhus, and the first liquid-fueled rocket engine was patented. First comic book writer of Superman, Jerry Siegel, the first actor who played Superman on TV, George Reeves, as well as Hedy Lamarr, Tyrone Power, baseball's Harry Carey, and Joe DiMaggio were all born. Engineer George Westinghouse and Archduke Ferdinand of Austria both died. And in 1914, upon the death of her father, Marjorie Merriweather Post inherits a fortune and begins growing a food empire. Marjorie Merriweather Post was born on March 15, 1887 in Springfield, Illinois, the second but only surviving child of Charles William Post, known to all as CW and his childhood sweetheart, Ella Letitia Merriweather. We don't know a lot about Marjorie's mama, except for the highlights, which unfortunately are tragedies. Her father died when she was only 10, and then her mother died a few years afterward, leaving her an orphan at 15. And though mama was the second youngest of seven siblings, her inheritance was large enough to give her a degree of financial independence. An uncle living nearby took Ella in. It's Marjorie's papa whose work left a lasting impact on history. Marjorie's father, C.W., was one of those smart men who made his wealth in the gold rush, not by mining gold, but by selling equipment and supplies to the gold miners. We always say that. Pancakes and pickaxes was where the money is in the gold rush. (laughs) That's right. C.W.'s father then moved his family east, stopping in Springfield, Illinois, and that's where he established his family. He decided to set up a very similar business model that he had in California, and instead of homesteading and farming, he sold farm equipment and supplies to the farmers, which is pretty brilliant. C.W. had gone to public school, but with his mechanical aptitude being off the charts, his parents sent him at 13 to the Illinois Industrial College in Urbana, which is still there as the University of Illinois. He was way too fidgety to sit in college classrooms, so he dropped out a couple years later to find his own path. Cast your minds back to yourselves your first year of middle school. Would you have been able to sit in a lecture hall? No. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) 
As a very young man, C.W. borrowed $500 and moved out west to the pioneer town of Independence, Kansas. And I am really trying to figure out if he was there the same time that Laura Ingalls Wilder was because it is really close. Uh He could have been the proprietor of the store where Pa went to get the Christmas candy. But anyway, within a year, C.W.'s business has failed and he was back home to start again. He got married and settled down to the more secure but infinitely less exciting prospect of agricultural machinery sales. (laughs) (laughs) While he was there, however, he put his mind to work on improving their design. He obtained patents on several pieces of farm equipment. One of them that I found interesting, I fell down a little rabbit hole of farm equipment. It's called a harrow. It's kind of like a plow. But it's this giant hairbrush that's dragged over the dirt, not to necessarily deeply dig it up, but just to kind of smooth it over and get the big chunks out. He also invented some type of a haystacker. Even if he couldn't use his mechanical aptitude in college, he's certainly using them in life. But ultimately, the family's manufacturing concern also failed. And there was a lot of pressure during this era to make something of yourself. Business failures were often seen as moral failures, I'm sorry to say. And C.W. was described as, quote, high strung by his contemporaries. And he began to take these failures very personally and had what we might consider to be nervous breakdown number one. And then in a stroke of perfect timing, C.W.'s wife presented him with both the best news a person could hear And simultaneously, the fire at his 19th century feet telling him to get his dang life together. Their daughter Marjorie was born and he looked around for his next big opportunity. When the post agricultural business failed, they decided to start over with a fresh slate and bought land outside of Fort Worth, Texas. That's a huge move. It's a curious leap of faith. They began to develop a planned community, which was called Sylvania. And CW had big plans for it. An electrical grid, a trolley system, plenty of parkland, but no real experience among the lot of them. Sylvania was a bust, though I will say there's still a Sylvania street in Fort Worth. Hmm. If you're there, send us a picture. (laughs) Uh, CW invented... While he was there, a new kind of suspender that didn't show, embarrassingly, under a jacket if you didn't wear a vest. In this era where our bra straps are free to be you and me land, the (laughs) fact that a man would be embarrassed about a suspender will tell you that we are definitely in Victorian times. Oh, no kidding. I have a bra that intentionally shows. (laughs) It's like like lace on the outside is to show underneath garments. I, I love it. They had little pulleys in them, which was kind of a a miracle of engineering. Also, as a side gig, he sold stationery made from recycled cottonseed hulls. And all of these big ideas hmm, had some degree of success, but largely failed. And the pressure just flattened him. And it's impossible to diagnose from here, but he was very high. He was very low. He was very high. He was very low. And it seems a lot like... He was suffering from manic depression. He had digestive distress and mental distress, and he decided to travel the world in search of a cure. While he was on his peregrinations, there's the Ravenclaw word of the day, (laughs) 
he suffered a second series of nervous breakdowns. And this is where Ella gets involved. She takes and bundles him up and brings him to the high tech for the times institute that's curing people of all kinds of ailments, the Kellogg Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. 25 years before CW was rolled into the doors, John Harvey Kellogg had expanded upon an existing health institute, made up a word, sanitarium, by changing the letters of sanatorium, which was a rehab center, and opened the doors to the Kellogg Sanitarium. By the time CW arrived, Dr. Kellogg had developed a health resort, and he based all of his treatments on some very healthy principles, a vegetarian diet, no alcohol, caffeine, or tobacco, lots of exercise, regular sleep, combined with some um, creative treatments like yogurt enemas. You would take yogurt, eat half of it, and receive the other half through the exit, (laughs) which... Struck me as odd, but I guess there's all that bacteria in it. <laughs> well, also, you'd be faced with the novelty of electric shock therapy or hydrotherapy, sometimes combined in dangerous ways, as you could see on uh, a movie called The Road to Wellville, mm-hmm. where you have your feet in some salt water and you're hooked up to electricity. Red flag. Red flag. <laughs> yeah. After some valiant efforts on CW's behalf, even the famous Dr. Kellogg himself told Mama he's a lost cause. I can't do anything with him. I can't, in good conscience, take any more of your money, ma'am. And and so Ella was full of despair. But true to form, CW rallied in his own time and under his own steam, first to start up his own tiny sanitarium in the shadow of the old established one, which worked as well as could be expected. He became deeply involved with the principles of the Christian scientist movement. He actually credits the Christian scientist philosophies of health for curing him at this particular juncture in his life. And why wouldn't he? Suddenly he was healthy. He could eat meat again and balanced meals. He did do a lot of exercise, a lot of physical movement. Sleep was super important. He became convinced that coffee and the caffeine that it contained was killing him. In fact, that it was killing everybody. And here's where I present you with two origin stories. Here is the official line. While CW was out in Texas, ranchers' wives, unable to get a hold of coffee, served him a coffee substitute of wheat berries and chicory. And that is what inspired him to create his own recipe for a coffee substitute, which he called postum, made of toasted wheat bran and molasses. Or, and we are simply placing this on the table before you, at Kellogg's Sanitarium, they served a coffee substitute called caramel coffee cereal. Mr. Post has been accused from the very beginning of the project of airlifting, shall we say, the recipe and concept of his project straight out of the Kellogg's sanitarium kitchen. Wherever inspiration had struck, when Marjorie was around eight years old, he started officially the Postum Company with $78 and a barn and a lot of moxie, I guess. He he made the Postum and took it to grocery stores to sell. And they just started to laugh at him like, 
proceed with me into the back room, my friend. Observe, they said, the giant sacks of Mr. Kellogg's caramel coffee that are not moving. (laughs) Why don't you get into a business that there's a reason for? And CW got so offended. That is not your concern. I'll provide the business. You provide the venue. How about this? And he agreed to let them have it on consignment. If it doesn't sell, I'll take it back. CW was a brilliant marketer. He started to offer samples of this product. And once people tasted it, they wanted it. So Postum was starting to sell in the local grocery stores. During the early months of her papa's new enterprise, Marjorie helped out by climbing up to the old hayloft to help the poor young lady who pasted all the labels on the jars. And Marjorie was living a pretty normal small town girl's existence. You're right. Marjorie's life was very normal. She was canning fruits and vegetables with her mother. She was going to regular school. She was playing with her friends. There was nothing that said this child is a privilege because at this point she wasn't. So Postum was doing a bit of all right. His local sales were climbing. The reputation of Postum was growing. Mr. Post began to use on his packaging the tagline, there's a reason, as a little bit of a I told you so to the local grocery store owners who had advised him to get into a business that there was a reason for. I think that's pretty funny. That tagline lasted a long, long time. So the business was fine. It was acceptable. It was reasonable. It was okay. But he knew that it could go bigger. So he began a national ad campaign for Postum, something new and different that food companies hadn't been doing. Kellogg certainly wasn't doing it with their product. While the ads were uh, not truthful, (laughs) let's just be honest, they were very successful. Customers began to clamor for Mr. Post's product. It was a hit. We talked about this during the Aunt Jemima podcast. Packaged, branded goods are pretty new. And they sure had a lot of luggage attached to them. These packaged goods meant safety. They meant sanitation. Oh, they're obsessed with sanitation. Mm -hmm. You're avant-garde if you buy these products. You're fashionable. In fact, you, madam, are part of the socially acceptable class. That's a lot to put on a little jar of wheat berries. (laughs) Even with that approach to prepackaged foods, CW took it to another level because he really was a marketing genius. He started to run a national newspaper advertising campaign with some very questionable uh, claims of what the postum would do for you, including curing your eyesight. He also claimed that it could prevent juvenile delinquency. <laughs> this is right from one of his ads. Children brought up on postum are free from the evil effects of caffeine. And caffeine is in italics, you know, saying this is a really bad thing for you to give your kids. He used phrases like coffee heart. And he always called coffee evil and the drug drink. So basically, caffeine is the devil's lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> it's rich for madness, but it's caffeine. Um, yeah, uh, caffeine was the demon. Mr. Post's success was, um, how shall I say, exponential. Postum was an extraordinarily successful product. Mr. Post ultimately followed up his great success with two more products. We're jumping ahead just a touch, but these products were possibly lifted from (laughs) Kellogg, so the rivalry story goes. 
Grape Nuts, which started out their lives as Kellogg's Granola, which in itself was lifted from a product called Granula. So the ethics are really dubious all the way around. And then a product called Elijah's Mana, which was a direct rival for Kellogg's Corn Flakes. I have to say, Mr. Post, in addition to being a marketing genius, was relatively ruthless. There were some imitators popping up for Postum. And so he basically created a fake brand of Postum, (laughs) sold it for under his cost to drive his competitors into bankruptcy, and then pulled the rival product from the market. (laughs) So Postum was the only one left. He also tried to shut Mr. Kellogg and his cornflakes down by cornering the market on the machines they use to make it. Now, this is from a guy who really had been ahead in the field of breakfast foods. He had realized that women were getting up really early in the morning to cook these breakfasts when they could have this cereal with some milk and it's a very nutritious meal and have it very quickly. Kellogg didn't get into the market of selling their products until Post had already been selling grape nuts for quite a long time. Isn't that weird that pretty much the most recognized name in cereal was not the first out of the gate? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mr. Post spread his empire all over the world. Notable former subject, Empress Su Chi of China was said to love both Postum and Grape Nuts. And I don't think we need to tell you that his daughter Marjorie is no longer pasting the labels on the Postum jars. (laughs) But what she is doing is being taken to business meetings with her father. Oh, ho, you might be forgiven as a man at the boardroom table thinking this is some kind of mascot situation some rich guy's little eccentricity. But as early as when Marjorie was only nine, Marjorie's father began to give her the education she would need to operate as a woman in business. She was going to be trained to understand the entire operation. And I just want to fill in a little bit about their relationship. Going back to since Marjorie was birthed, CW was a very hands-on parent as far as fathers go. He was very unusual. And they had a fantastic relationship. He would tell her stories at night. They would go fishing even before they ate breakfast, go on hikes. CW was a big proponent of positive thinking and mind over matter. And he used to take Marjorie and her mother out in the snow barefoot to prove to them how if they just put their mind to something, they could do it. I think they had a great relationship and a very close relationship all along. So these business meetings really were just an extension of that. If Marjorie was doing well in school, he said, she could come with me and learn this business. And she wasn't learning it so that she could take it over. She was learning it so that she could understand when her husband took it over. Because that's the times in which we live. (laughs) So as she grew and got older, he took much pride in her beautiful looks and her nice manners and dressed her as a fashionable, quote, little woman. They would go to fashionable haunts like our famous old friend Newport, Rhode Island, or trips to Europe. But weird, wasn't it, that it was Mr. Post's tween daughter who accompanied him on work trips and not his wife. Ella and C.W., had gotten married very early. He said that she was his childhood sweetheart. 
But once they were married and CW was traveling and getting sick, they kind of drifted apart emotionally. So as the years are going by, CW is getting even busier and has no energy left to focus on his wife. She is really mentally out of the marriage, even though physically she's there. So that's why she wasn't going on all of these trips. And she started to suffer some health conditions of her own. Or maybe she just wanted to get away, you know, from the pressures of being married to CW. So it could have been either way. I can't diagnose from here. But Papa's business interests were starting to keep him away from home on a more extended basis. I mean, in Battle Creek, he now had a new hotel. He had a new theater, several office buildings. He had enhanced his production in office facilities for Postum. To the point where it was viewed as um, kind of a revelation in the way that factories could operate. They called it the white city. He believed that if you provided your employees with a, you know, a beautiful environment in which to work, you know, that's the power of positive thinking again, that their, their loyalty would be there and that it would become like a big family. His whole entire career was against trade unions, thinking if paternalistically, if you just treat them well, they won't need to unionize. You know, they won't even want it. Like he was a little short sighted. That's true. And to that end, you know, he's wanting to take care of his employees. In Battle Creek, he had an actual subdivision with 579 houses built for his employees. He named the streets after his family members. The houses were adorable. They were affordable. The employees had to buy them, but there was a very small down payment and the mortgage rates were reasonable for their income that they were making at the plant. So he, I think for the time, he's bending over backwards to make his employees comfortable. I actually grew up in a town like this in Connecticut. It had a silk mill and they had built houses for their, well, most of them were for their upper management, but in the neighborhood of the mills, and they're still there. It's a historic district now. And people used to get up with the sound of the mill whistle. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunately, that can't be said for CW subdivision. And that is a very sad tale. It's not it's not as preserved as the one I grew up with in uh, Manchester, Connecticut, unfortunately. Well, so Papa's work combined with the absences of her mother left young Marjorie as sort of a latchkey kid. I see you, children of the 80s, eating Kool-Aid with a spoon out of the packet. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had put the back of your hand on your forehead, only a large retinue of servants to keep her company. So Papa hired functionally another servant to be her companion, her governess, we might say, a beautiful young postum employee named Layla Young, who would also work as Papa's private secretary while Marjorie was at school. How handy. How much of a cliche is that? Oh, sorry. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Right. More on that a little bit later. I treated myself the other day to a hydrangea. I've been wanting a new hydrangea bush for quite a while. I bought a new one and I can't wait to see it blossom. 
It's good to treat yourself once in a while. Give yourself a little TLC. How about give yourself a little third love comfort? Third love knows the science behind top to bottom comfort without sacrificing style from perfectly fitted bras and underwear to quality sleepwear. Third love makes putting on your essentials feel like you're indulging yourself every single day. You know, I've mentioned it many times before. My entire lingerie drawer is full of third love bras, but I also have some loungewear. I have a jogger set. I must have had this for three or four years and I still love it. It still looks fantastic. Yes, third love makes many pretty things, but third love makes things that are built to last and most importantly, built to do the job that you buy a bra or underwear or loungewear for. If you haven't done it yet, go take the fitting room quiz. The questions factor in your breast size, shape, current fit issues, and your personal style to help you find bras and underwear that are perfect for you. You deserve some TLC. That's Third Love Comfort. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to get 20% off your first purchase. That's third love, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 20% off today. When Marjorie was 14, she was enrolled in the Mount Vernon Seminary, a boarding school in Washington, D.C. Her father, looking around Battle Creek, you know, everybody's fine people and everything, but he wanted his daughter to associate with society. And Battle Creek was then in that area. This school was sort of like a finishing school to prepare young ladies for two paths, college, that's a question mark exclamation point, (laughs) if you want to, or more properly, a rigorous education designed to prepare these young ladies to be quality wives of quality men. Most of the students at this school were engaged by their senior year of the high school course. In an era when women did not typically run businesses, Josephine Cochran and her washing machine and Lydia Pinkham and her medicaments um, (laughs) and Nellie Bly and her metalworks uh, aside, (laughs) I wonder if Papa was thinking about his future son-in-law to run the business. So here she was being sent to this school to be exposed to the right sort of young men, I think. I Oh, I agree completely. And although CW and Ella didn't come together on very many things, they both agreed that the Mount Vernon Seminary was the place to send Marjorie for that very reason. You know, she will be finished as a person and she will find the next heir to the Postum Company. And if Ella and CW had been emotionally separated while they were in Battle Creek under the same very large roof, they became physically separated in that Ella moved to D.C. to be closer to Marjorie. She moved into an apartment Not to be forgotten, CW had a home in D.C., so they both have separate residents in the same city, both Ella and CW. They would never live together again. Although this actually made Mama and Marjorie a lot closer. I think they were able to develop a little bit of a closer 
bond during this period. So maybe it was the relief of no longer having the expectation of daily life with Papa that made Mama a much easier person to be around. Later, Marjorie had explained that she was very cultured and very interested in literature and music and discussion and a very calm, lovely person to be around. So I'm glad that that turned around and they got a little closer here in the middle of her life. I really think that they got closer, too, because Marjorie was happy. She was living with all these other girls her own age. She had the sibling kind of relationships that she never had growing up. And she wasn't the go-between between between her mother and her father anymore. She she was Mm -hmm. comfortable in her own skin. She was comfortable where she was living. She loved this school. She was learning English literature and composition, European and American history, art, music, because it was a seminary. They also had Bible history. But that background of the other academics also gave her something to talk to Ella about. And there was something else that happened about this time. Sure, she's around girls her own age and social class, but guess who else she's around? Older boys of her own social class. From the age of 15, Marjorie was the belle of the ball, like Emma Woodhouse from Jane Austen. She was handsome, clever, and rich. At 15 years of age, her postum stock was already worth $2 million. Papa gave her a million dollars for her 16th birthday. <laughs> and I am just reminded of this YouTuber, I won't say his name, that my son used to watch. When he was 16, he had so much money that he bought his mother a house. And I am wondering, how do you parent in this situation? How do you parent when your child is so wealthy? And Mr. Post took to cajoling Marjorie for all the good it did. Like, make the furs that you already have do. Stop ordering clothes. You're blowing money. You need to be a little more blah, 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 blah. It all fell on deaf ears. She was the most fashionable girl in her year. She was. And she was like, if you think of the Gibson girl, this is the era that we're talking about right now. That was Marjorie. She was the ideal. Of course, girls were drawn to her because of her personality. But um, her looks originally drew the boys. And then her financial status kind of kept them coming. I thought it was so interesting that CW, for the things he wanted for her, he wanted her to meet a boy of substance and culture. He wanted her to get this education. He was the first person to buy her fancy Parisian dresses. When she's in finishing school and making these decisions on her own, CW is like, whoa, hold on there. You got to stop this behavior. And it was behavior he taught her. That was what cracked me up over and over again. There's something in one of his letters that's like, you have more clothes than any girl of 17 in the world should ever have. (laughs) I know. (laughs) She kept that habit throughout her whole life, I think. Well, though the bees certainly buzzed around her, Marjorie was in love. That 16-year-old intense kind of love, if you remember it. Oh, so uncomfortable. With, (laughs) I would go back, with a Columbia Law School student named Ed Close, who had proposed to her four days after he met her, which of course, longtime listeners would know, I myself am in (laughs) no position uh, to mock or disbelieve, by the way, um, as I had the same address as my husband within hours of meeting him. So there's that. I was not 16 in my defense, but so romantic. I mean, could you die, etc. Blurg, said Papa. (laughs) 
And the really ironic thing is this is the kind of guy he had wanted for her. He was old money. He was related to the Knickerbockers, who were first residents of New York City. His family had established the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, which to this day is an extremely affluent area. Ed Close came from the kind of old moneyed family that they wanted Marjorie to marry into. But Papa was like, well, you're still too young. He made her promise to wait until she was 18 to get engaged to anyone. But she kept writing Mrs. Ed Close in her diary. Yes, she did. (laughs) So that's percolating in the background. Marjorie graduated from Mount Vernon at 17 with no intention at all to go on to take the two-year college preparatory course, nor indeed to go to any university on this earth. No thought of it. No. She became a young lady at home. And Papa began construction of a mansion called the Boulders with one wing for him and one wing for Marjorie and her future family. Gosh, that's a lot of pressure, though. You know what? (laughs) Well, and the town that he's building it in is Ed Close's hometown. It's Greenwich, Connecticut. It's the town his family helped establish. So even though he's saying, I mean, literally from one of his letters, you're too valuable of a prize for anyone to run in and hurry off with. He's building this mansion for her to live in in Ed's town. Hmm. Well, turbulent waters await. Months after graduation, Papa and Mama got divorced, which was relatively uncommon. Um, No acrimony, at least not from her father's side. Here, have some money. Vaya con Dios, you know. Um, But a month later, Papa married his secretary, Marjorie's (laughs) governess. And here is Marjorie's response to that news. Oh, for God's sake. And Marjorie says her hair turned white overnight. That's right. <laughs> Fine then, says Marjorie, who's just turned 18. I wish to become engaged to Ed Close. And at 18, he really could not stop her legally. Nope. So Ed and her father were temperamental opposites. Ed was so calm and kind of like um, in Sense and Sensibility when we were talking about the colonel. Everyone loved him. No one remembers to talk to him. Kind of. (laughs) Well, uh, one of his friends actually said, a very nice fellow, but the type of man who, unless you met him several times, you wouldn't remember him at all. Dear. I know. But Ed was old money. He was secure in his position in that unthinking way that CW just didn't have. Ed had nothing to prove. And so he didn't prove anything. (laughs) And I wonder if it's maybe the contrast between her just electric papa and his ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And then here's Ed with this like large extended family and old friends and tradition and connections was maybe a blanket of relief, like Mm -hmm. plain, you know? Yeah. Um, It felt comfortable, I think, for her. Yeah. There was no turmoil. So the wedding was on. They decided to have a small wedding, which kind of isn't what I would have imagined for Marjorie. Uh, They claimed it was because the divorce was so recent that it would raise eyebrows and that CW's marriage was also very recent and also very eyebrow raising. So they decided to have a small wedding. CW had told her once he accepted the fact that this is what she was going to do, as far as her trousseau was concerned, make it as lovely as possible. There was no budget 
at all. And so Marjorie did just that. She had nine ball gowns, 11 pairs of boots, six sets of lingerie, and dozens of dresses in her trousseau. But all was not smooth. There was a constant, never-ending fight over who is going to go to this wedding. Ella said she wouldn't go if Layla went. Layla said she wouldn't go if Ella went. Well, you can't leave out her mother from her wedding. Well, you can't leave my wife out of the wedding. It is a nightmare. And I have to tell you, my husband, who is a wedding caterer, says that there is still that sort of drama in, he estimates, about 40% of the weddings. Mm -hmm. I actually had it happen at my wedding. I'm not naming names, but it definitely happened at my wedding. Some sort of of family brouhaha is Mm -hmm. always percolating. Mm -hmm. And not only was there family drama, something happened at the wedding rehearsal that enraged Marjorie for a period of multiple decades. (laughs) Marjorie knew that she was new money, but she also knew that she was extraordinarily wealthy. Ed's family and his parents' friends were old money. This is like the 400 in New York. This is the people that we talked about in the Mrs. Astor episode and the Alva and Consuelo episodes. The cultural differences of this were coming apparent to Marjorie as she was planning the wedding. It really hit a peak at the rehearsal of the wedding. She passed by two society women and overheard them saying, she's a cute little thing considering who she is and where she's from. Meaning that they thought she was from the Midwest and that was awful. She was uncultured. And worst of all, she was new money. It enraged Marjorie so much that she remembers thinking at that moment, I'll show those SOBs if it takes me 60 years. Spoiler, it took less than that. (laughs) We talked about those contrasts in our Gilded Age heiresses podcast. This was that era. She easily could have been one of the Midwest industrialists or retailers' daughters who married into a title, which seems almost easier than breaking into old New York TM. So on December 5th, 1905, 18-year-old Marjorie, wearing what today would be valued at over a million-dollar engagement ring that Ed had bought her, she had a white silk satin, silk organza, heavily laced, heavily embroidered, short sleeve wedding gown with the long gloves and the little escape hatch on the ring finger so that he could put the ring on her finger. 18-year-old Marjorie and 22-year-old recent law school grad Edward Bennett Close were married. They were married at Grace Church, the most fashionable wedding location in New York City, for which Ed's family had donated the land generations ago. (laughs) The newlyweds settled into the new mansion, the Boulders, into their little 11-bedroom wing, like you do. (laughs) But Papa dumped her into the deep end. You know, there's gardeners, there's maids, there's cooks. There's vast amounts of responsibility. He said, okay, you know, you are now the mistress of this house. All of the ordering, the maintenance, and the accounting is on you. And she just was like, whoa, out of her depth. He hired a housekeeper to help her for a couple of months. And then the housekeeper was to move on and leave her with it. And during the course of the first couple of months, her accounting was four cents off. And Papa freaked out on her about it. If you don't mind the little errors, they grow. and. Marjorie lost 25 pounds from the sheer stress of the pressure of the first year of her marriage. Ed began a new law practice in Manhattan. 
So Marjorie was rattling around this giant house sort of by herself. Papa's not going to be any less of a workaholic. And even if he was there, like, what are you going to do? Like yell his name into the air? She was very disillusioned, I think, by how her married life had started out. So for a while, Ed went to work with Papa, Papa's lifelong dream of a son-in-law in the business, in the cereal business, and they moved back to Battle Creek. Marjorie became a brilliant hostess and the talk of the town. I think it is much easier to live as the big fish. Don't yes. you think? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> a post in a post town. But Ed didn't have the fire Papa wanted in an executive. He didn't have an ounce of the competitive spirit in him. And CW was putting out fires all over the place and he needed someone a lot more snappy. His cereal, Elijah's Manna, was in the process of being religiously canceled because of the name on both sides of the Atlantic. He eventually changed its name to Post Toasties. Some health claims, <laughs> for example, grape nuts do not cure appendicitis. <laughs> some health claims on the packaging were exposed. There was a lawsuit. There was some libel. There's a constant battle with emerging competitors in all three products. And the incipient, quote, threat of organized labor moving into his manufacturing facility. And it was all too much for Ed, who was like, no, no, thank you. Yeah. Get, I'm out of here. He just couldn't stomach that level of uh, chaos, I guess, and negativity. But in their marriage, there was also some problems right from the get-go. Ed knew that Marjorie was a Christian scientist when they got married, and he put the full court press on her to switch to the Episcopalian Church. None of this nonsense, you know, pray away your ales. You need to join me at the Episcopalian Church. That's where our people go. And she's like, I'm not having any part of that. So everything is not going as great as her parties were. So they moved back to Greenwich, Connecticut to take up the life of the smart set. And their first daughter, Adelaide, was born in 1908. I thought it was curious slash telling that in the midst of labor, even though her mama was literally in the room, there at the end, she asked for her papa. Marjorie was holding CW's hand so hard that he started to bleed. He was right there when the baby was born. He was so <laughs> appalled by what he had seen that after it was all over and everyone was fluttering around cleaning up, he left the room and said out loud, no one should ever be forced to bring forth human life, went downstairs to his study, poured himself a giant shot of whiskey <laughs> and <laughs> recovered. <laughs> Uncharacteristically, because the posts were not drinkers, Christian scientists, you know, which was a major issue that Marjorie had with her lifestyle in Greenwich. Wasps, you know, have plenty of drink and a bowl of nuts to eat, <laughs> typically. And nowhere in Marjorie's sheltered existence did people drink a bottle of whiskey and stagger around, at least not unless they were hobos on the side of the road. But yet here we were. It was a major bone of contention. And I say again, as I've said in many episodes, that the propriety of the middle class is higher than the propriety of the upper or lower classes, <laughs> the standards of propriety, you know, mm -hmm. and Marjorie, despite her money, you know, new money made her middle class. And Ed often clashed with her on, on matters of taste. More low-key Marjorie, less fuss. And it embarrassed her, I think. Mm -hmm. 
A year and a half after Adelaide's birth, they welcome their second daughter, Eleanor Postclose, this time without an assist by CW. Marjorie was 23 years old. She's the mother of two now and a society hostess in Greenwich. As a mother, Marjorie wasn't exactly warm and cuddly. She could afford not to be. Well, that was customary, though, in their circle and in that social class to be handed off to Nanny. I mean, who was a professional? Child mm-hmm. care right. was considered to be the proper way. You know, children were to be seen at four o'clock for half an hour and not heard. You know, right. um, that's how it went. We've seen Down Abbey. <laughs> it's the same year. Later in life, one of her daughters would say of Marjorie, she was wonderful when you got to be 13, but no good with little kids. So for that to stick with them all through life tells you how uncuddly she was at this age. So the closest had a reputation for being a local power couple, though extraordinarily conventional, <laughs> like the rest of their friends. They were mismatched in temperament more and more as time went by, though they kept that on the DL. Marjorie felt a little oppressed by the rules of her husband's circle of friends and, quote, polite society in general. But outwardly, she was the ideal suburban young matron, you know, wrapped in plastic. How fantastic. (laughs) Um, With no indication of the glorious icon that she would become in later life. Yeah, her life was really textbook upper class. They belonged to the, at the time, fairly new Greenwich Country Club, which is one of those places, if you have to ask, you can't afford it, because I was trying to find out how much it cost now <laughs> to be a member. And the closest I could come is between eighty and 120000 to join and fifty to 30000 a year. Plus, you need a couple sponsors. You know, you can't just walk into the door and say, here's my card. Plus, all the martinis are probably extra. Right. (laughs) And she was also starting to work on boards, philanthropic boards, doing fundraising, not diving in, not heading up these boards, but just kind of doing the entry level society wife um, amount of work for charity. At 25, Marjorie received the news via telegram that no one wants to hear. Regret to inform you. Stop. Your mother, Ella Post, died in her sleep. Stop. Of a heart attack, though Marjorie always said that her mother really died of a broken heart after her father left. Okay. Six years after the divorce, you think she's still heartbroken? I don't know. I I don't. Well, I don't have to buy it because I don't care. I mean, I care, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and her papa's health, never robust, was failing again. His old stomach troubles were plaguing him. His old despairing moods had crept back in. His doctors seriously suspected this time that he was suffering from appendicitis. Now, just like us at mayoclinic.com, he'd asked around and he'd read just enough to scare the crap out of himself about surgery. And he was terrified. And he would only let the original Dr. Mayo, Mm -hmm. speaking of that, the OG's founders of the Mayo Clinic operate on him. Those are the only people he could trust. And so there was a hell for leather cross-country train trip for emergency surgery. So the surgery was successful. And sure enough, he did have appendicitis and he was at home apparently recovering, but his spirits were very ragged. He convinced himself with too much time to think that after all of his work with Cereals for Health and wellness and his whole mission in life, that his body was betraying him and that he was just sure 
with no evidence that he had stomach cancer. The exact reasons, we can't be sure. One day he sat down and wrote a letter to Marjorie and Layla saying in part, I had to give vent to pent-up feelings and C.W. Post died by suicide in May of 1914. So at 27, Marjorie accompanied her father's body back to a battle creek that was draped in black. The mourning for C.W. Post in this town was compared in an article that I read, um, if you want to kind of get a vision of what it was like, to the shock and sadness that America would later feel after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It just was shock and and grief. He'd been their patron. He'd been their boss. He created that town. He created that industry, you know, and, and he was just, he was gone. His will was read and it was controversial. He gave 50% of the stock in Postum to each of Marjorie and Layla, but a paper existed that Postum stock was to belong to Marjorie at her father's death. That was an agreement that Marjorie's mother and father had come to long ago at its incorporation. And Layla was very anxious to avoid any drama in the papers, any publicity, and a settlement was quickly reached. Money for stock, nothing to see here. We have nothing to argue about. All is fine. We love each other. Move on, please, newspapers of America and the world. (laughs) And so, therefore, at the tender age of 27, Marjorie Post Close became the sole inheritor of the Postum Company, valued at $20 million, which is $526 million today. And she was now the richest woman in America. Marjorie was the principal shareholder of the Postum Cereal Company. And what did that even mean? Well, in 1915, it meant that Ed went to represent his wife's interest at Postum to the board of directors, which was they called the cabinet. (laughs) I thought that was cool. There was no thought, none, not even in Marjorie's own mind, not yet, that she'd be running things herself. And like so many of our subjects on this show, she had to make decisions and influence policy by proxy. But I assure you there were deep thoughts and lots of plans at home because as we have established, Ed had no head for business and no passion for it either. Mm. No stomach either. Yeah. (laughs) He was not the guy. She was definitely the one with the strings. She believed that that was the greatest role ever. You know, she didn't aspire to be in that position. She aspired to be able to dictate to Ed what to do. So they had another source of conflict. Where were they going to live? You've got Ed on one side, basically singing, Connecticut's the place to be. (laughs) Golf living is the life for me. And she's like, I just adore a penthouse view, you know. Right. But Ed and Marjorie were in the city during the week and then out to Greenwich by the weekend. It was sort of a compromise, but it ended up being kind of a conflict because in days gone by, Marjorie would have agreed to Ed's preferences, I think, and deferred to him and just gone back to the suburbs. And now she is feeling her oats, but not 
unfortunately, her supplies of corn and wheat. Just as Marjorie had inherited, America joined World War I and the government commandeered her whole supply of grain for all of her grain-based products. It's a problem. So the company had to experiment with alternative grains and also opened their own grain mills, which turned out to be surprisingly profitable and full of side products like animal feed and vegetable oil. Mm -hmm. So hooray for that accident. Uh, you know, her father did things like that. And I think that may have been where she got the idea because when he decided that it was costing too much to make the paper for the packaging, he opened up a paper plant. Right. Like if you can't get a hold of it from elsewhere, I guess you're going to have to do it yourself. Similar to a history podcast that I know about <laughs> called the <laughs> History Chicks Podcast. <laughs> That's funny. So just as Marjorie got her head above water again, they're out at date night. They're going to a dance and she gets a phone call. The boulders is on fire. Now, the girls were staying there and they were taken out by the servants. And by the time that Marjorie and Ed got back to their home in Greenwich, the place was burning down. People were throwing things out the window. Mrs. Rockefeller, who was a neighbor, picked up a stash of Marjorie's love letters that had been in a trunk and pitched out the window and the trunk broke and they flew everywhere. There was valuable art just thrown all over the yard and trunks of clothing just tossed out the windows. And it's almost like a change came over Marjorie from the fire. Her father's half of the house had literally exploded. He had insisted on having his half um, piped for illuminating gas for heating purposes, not her half. His half literally exploded. It was not fixable. Symbolically, maybe, she is on her own at last. And she decided she's not going to resurrect this Greenwich existence. There's no point. Mm -mm. No. And they had recently bought a very large mansion on Millionaire's Row in Manhattan on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 92nd Street. I mean, it's still a really great address. So New York City it was. And Marjorie gathered around her a widening circle of friends who found her delightful and charming. She developed a passion for antiques, though I will tell you at this level, we might want to start calling them antiquities. <laughs> this is the vase versus vase debate like times a million. Um, she right. had a museum curator advising her on her acquisitions. I think we've transcended the vintage market here. Um, Ed found these distasteful. What are these things? Who are these people? His constant bewilderment and anger was increasingly easy to ignore. His disapproval did not mean as much to her as it once had. No, she just kind of turned her shoulder and walked off to take her art lessons at the Metropolitan Museum of Art so that she could learn more. I love that about her. She wanted to learn and she just went out and got that education. So as the war began for America, Marjorie was looking around at what she could do to make a difference to the Allied cause. And she settled on funding an entire Red Cross Army hospital in France. Along with so many other men, Ed had been drafted and he was to accompany the ship carrying Marjorie's supplies to France. And as the ship was leaving New York Harbor, it got hit by another ship and sunk. 
So Marjorie just funded the whole thing again. It only took her eight days to restock and send a second ship. I will say everybody was saved. Every person Mm -hmm. um, was saved from the original ship, but only the fishes ever saw those supplies again. That was a bummer. The second ship made it to France after having been attacked by the Germans on the way in. But ultimately, that stock of supplies and some follow-up supplies became the largest Red Cross hospital in Europe. And Marjorie got a powerful feeling of joy and satisfaction to be able to make this sort of difference. And she she wanted more of it. Let's file that away. That was awesome. Of the work she was doing for the war effort, she said, I'm not the richest woman in the world. There's others better off than I am. The only difference is that I do more with mine. I put it to work. And that kind of goes along with a philosophy that her father C.W. had when he was thinking about starting the um, employee housing and making his production line much nicer to work in than those lightless, airless factories of most major cities. He said, you have to put a little philanthropy in with your business and then a little business in with your philanthropy. And that's the way to do it. And that's kind of what Marjorie was doing. Marjorie decided to get involved in the suffrage movement at this point. She joined the New York State Suffrage Party and even managed to get a meeting with President Wilson to discuss the vote for women. So not only is she like funding hospitals, she's like, you know what, I'm going to go see the president because we need to get women to vote. She became so independent while Ed was deployed, so accustomed to taking control of her days, her fortune and her life. That when Ed got back from war after the Allied victory, Marjorie asked Ed for a divorce. She was no longer the relatively meek, definitely naive, obedient woman he'd married. She'd grown up and she'd grown away from him. So let's not feel too, too sorry for Ed. He did get remarried less than a year after the divorce. And incidentally, that marriage ended up giving us one of his grandchildren, Glenn Close. So it all worked out. (laughs) Dangerous liaisons would never have happened without the divorce. (laughs) Back at the ranch, the postum ranch, Marjorie installed, there's no other word for it, a trusted male friend into the cabinet who kept her apprised of the state of affairs. She was increasingly suspicious that her uncles were sort of bungling things over there and not telling her everything. And her friend rose through the ranks gradually as people retired. Marjorie was going to gently and calmly relieve her uncles of the burden of rule and bring Postum into the modern world. So she is putting in place a kind of long game mm-hmm. here um, right after her divorce. What she was also putting into place is her next marriage. Once upon a time, at the beginning of the war, she had met at a dinner party a sparkling uh, electric man who reminded her so much of her dear departed papa. But as he was married, and so was she, it was just dancing and conversation. Fair enough. But fast forward to just after the war. 32-year-old Marjorie once again encountered this man, and now she was divorced. And he was a widower. He had been robbed of his spouse by the Spanish flu. What a thing to have hit a decimated population so soon after such a devastating war. About 675,000 died in America alone. We're almost there, I'm sorry to say. As of this recording, COVID has taken 600,000 Americans. 
So when Marjorie re-met this man, it really seemed like Thunderbolt City for her and E.F. Hutton. Does anyone understand that little moment of silence? If so, that was an age test. For everyone else, there was an extraordinarily famous commercial from my very young childhood where there would be a regular old situation and somebody would say, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And everybody would stop talking and look. (laughs) And to the point where we were like in first grade, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And the whole little class would stop talking and look. (laughs) What was the tagline? When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Yeah, see? It sticks. It totally sticks. Some commercials stick. It's not O-S-C-A-R, my baloney has. I mean, it's not like catchy, but I remembered it and so did you. Yep. Well, Marjorie certainly listened. (laughs) Yes, she did. That E.F. Hutton. Together, they were just these bright young things, bright young-ish things in this new reformed sort of society. So gone or going were the rigid conventions of Ed's people that brought her down. You know, life is short, said the post-war, post-pandemic society. We got to wring out the juice and wring out the joy of life. So on July 7th, 1920, Marjorie married E.F. Hutton. She was wearing this time a lavender organza, again, a short sleeve dress, but no gloves. Her two daughters, Adelaide and Eleanor, were her bridesmaid, and they were married in Marjorie's Manhattan mansion. So society still thought of them as climbers, but you know what? What did they care? They hung out with the stars of stage and screen, with minor royalty, with other titans of industry, whatever. E.F. Hutton had begun so poor that he had had to leave school to support the family in the mailroom of a securities firm. That was a lucky break. Mm. By the time he was 20, he was a partner in a brokerage. By 30, he had his own brokerage in California. And now here at 45, he was one of the most prominent stockbrokers on Wall Street. So whatever any Knickerbocker old New Yorker thought of him, he didn't really care. No, <laughs> I mean, he's polite and he, he certainly takes their money and their business. Um, but otherwise, you know, as Chris would say, and I don't want included in the show, bite me in my gluten free fundament. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't I leave that? <laughs> I'm gonna, well, <laughs> I'll make you take it out. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you want me to leave it in. I will. It's a little yeah, off color. It. I liked it. I think as a couple, they were very electric. He had a lot of energy. He had a lot of drive. He was very charming. He was, I thought of him as being jaunty, you know, and intelligent. And instead of being opposites, like her and Ed had been, they were similar and complementary, I think. I think so, too. I think he brought a, like, a high gear Mm-hmm. to her life that she hadn't been able to explore either through her father's lifetime or her first husband's. She right. she dressed more frivolously. She was able to let herself go a little bit. She was not just bound by these rigid conventions that she had been prone to live by when she mm-hmm. was married to the old established Ed, you know. Yeah. E.F. brought a son into the marriage. He was equally charming as his father. He's, he was 18 years old. His name was Halcourt. The girls loved him, and he <laughs> loved them back right away. He called them the peskies, but in, you know, a charming older brother, ruffle the hair kind of way. As a blended family, they got off to an amazing start. 
They all headed off to E.F. Hutton's hunting lodge in Long Island. They're going to have some family time. Halcourt was an experienced horse rider. Unfortunately, even experienced horse riders can't handle it when the saddle becomes loose and they get their legs twisted in it and are hanging upside down on the horse. Halcourt hit his head on the cobblestones that he was riding on at a gallop, and he did die of his injuries. Of course, the whole family just plunged into grief. And at that moment, Marjorie decided that she was going to give her husband a son. So between them, Marjorie and Ned, which is what she called him to differentiate him from her first husband, Ed, (laughs) uh, set up this whole amazing lifestyle worthy of perambulating royalty of yore with houses in desirable locations all over the country. I will tell you, whole books have been written about Marjorie Post's houses. (laughs) So we can refer you to some of those in media, but just for a quick little list, there was Hillwood in Long Island, basically an English country house. So you've got that picture in your mind. There was Hot Ridge, the quote, camp. Do you agree with me that camp is probably not the right word? (laughs) No, no. Compound is probably a better word. And if you have a image of little teeny tiny cottages, get rid of that. We're talking about a very large home with 18 guest cottages, each with their own butler. And you couldn't even get to this place by land. You had to take a boat. But once you got there, you were required every evening to dress in formal attire. So you spend the day kayaking and hiking, and then you get dressed up in your fanciest duds for a dance that evening. Well, there were 85 people on staff at this place. This is like uber glamping. (laughs) Before glamping was even glamping. You know what I mean? Your picnic baskets were prepared by a chef. (laughs) Right, right, right. They also had a 54-room apartment on several top floors of an expensive New York City building that had a dining table that could seat 120 and often did. And that apartment on the top three floors was an exact reproduction of a mansion they had in that same location, but it was getting too noisy with all the traffic. So the building was built up and an exact duplicate of that mansion was on the top of it. Man, when you want stuff and you have unlimited money, you just get stuff, don't you? I know. It's like the mansion in the sky. I'd like it. Yes, please. Okay, here you go. They also built a house in the newly developing money magnet capital of Palm Beach. The house there was called Hogarcito, and it just sold for $18 million last year. If you have $84,000 a month to spend on a mortgage, Merry (laughs) Christmas to you. But it was not big enough for them to entertain properly. No, they outgrew the cottage really fast. And Marjorie wanted something that was bigger and something more glamorous. Maybe something with a place where they could see both the ocean on one side and Lake Worth, which was to the west, on the other side. She tossed around some ideas, found a plot of land. She had envisioned something kind of like their camp in the Adirondacks. 
except glamorous and with palm trees. And so she played around with some ideas, including a conversation or two with one of Flo Ziegfeld's set designers who had some very outlandish ideas. Finally, she took some of those ideas, talked to a real architect who could make them happen. And this beautiful Spanish-Venetian palace began to rise. It was anchored to a coral reef so that it wouldn't blow over in any storms. They were planning to build a tunnel from the house below a road to the beach. All of her houses had names. And she thought about this one and she decided on a phrase that was from sea to lake. Mar-a-Lago. What? Not content with being expensive on land, the couple also bought a yacht. A yacht called the Hissar 4, hundreds of feet long with three masts, a power schooner, which became the surprising crossroads for a revolution in food. Marjorie and Ned were moored outside of Gloucester, Massachusetts, when they were served goose at dinner. Amazingly tasty and uh, out of season. Where did you get that goose? Oh, I bought it frozen off this guy in town, said the cook. And Marjorie investigated. Bugs Birdseye ran a business called the General Seafoods Corporation, where he specialized in, quote, frosted foods. Not just fish, but other meats like goose, <laughs> fruits and vegetables. People had tried this before out of desperation, but if you freeze a lot of things slowly, like when you just stick, for example, imagine putting a strawberry in the freezer. It, it makes the water inside the cells into these shards of ice that pierce the cell walls. And so when you thaw it, it's like gloopy sludge. Attractive. Tasty. Well, Clarence Birdseye had worked for years to perfect a method for flash freezing. It kept the crystals of ice very small and therefore the cells intact and the food nice and fresh. Now, he didn't claim to have invented the concept. He said, quote, the Eskimos have been doing it for centuries. We would say indigenous people of the Arctic region. He, of course, being a man of the 1920s, would definitely not. And also some other scientists had been experimenting. What he did was perfect the method for flash freezing large quantities of food. Because before, the only real way to serve fruit out of season was to have spent the entire month of August canning produce. And if you recall so many books set in that time period, think of Anne of Green Gables. There's always a dish of preserves on the table. Because if you didn't pick that fruit and put it right on the table, make it into preserves during the summer with no air conditioning. <laughs> it was awesome. And Marjorie had done it in her youth and knew how much it sucked. <laughs> she was so intrigued by the whole concept of this and lobbied her husband to acquire Mr. Birdseye's company. Mr. Birdseye wanted, quote, only $10 million for the whole kit and caboodle, said Marjorie. It's a bargain. You know what? <laughs> only $10 million just doesn't seem like a bargain to me, but I guess it's a matter of perspective. Ned Hutton had just become the chairman of the board of Postum, and he was absolutely not convinced. Groceries don't have freezers. Train cars don't have freezers. Housewives don't have freezers. Do you sense a theme here, Marjorie? People are not going to invest in some kind of new expensive machinery for what is, in fact, a marginal product. But I get you, Marjorie, I do. We need to diversify. 
It had been CW's dream to parlay his success with Postum and cereal products into a wider empire. And that, my dear Marjorie, we will do. An umbrella company with non-competing, nationally known brands. Check. And that's where we're going to have to stop. We're going to come back with a part two. We still have a lot to talk about in Marjorie's life, but I think we're going to have to end it here. We're going to talk about Jell-O. We're going to talk about Mar-a-Lago. We're going to talk about Marie Antoinette. <laughs> we're going to talk about Russia. Oh, we're going to talk about gardens. There's a Sorry. lot. There's an awful lot. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on your favorite podcatcher. We would like to issue a extraordinarily strong recommendation for you to go to the History Channel and watch a series called The Food That Built America, in which in the first episode, you will meet such characters as C.W. Post and Dr. Kellogg. Marjorie Post appears in a later episode along with Bugs, bird's eye and his frosted foods. Uh, the famous names in the food industry, there's Kraft, there's Heinz, there's Hershey, Pizza Hut, McDonald's. It's, it's amazing. I do believe that there are two spots left on our trip to London on August 1st. So go if you're interested to likemindstravel.com and investigate the details there. In addition, if you are London adjacent and would like to join us on our Thames evening dinner cruise, the information for those tickets is available there too at likemindstravel.com. The music in the middle is Oatmeal Cereal by the Park Street Trio because I thought it was funny. And the end song is In the Hands of Money by Spoons. We'll see you next time with part two.